number of weeks now, and we're talking about friendship. And uh, all through the series, we started back in September. I don't know if you remember, we, we kind of built up in four, about four weeks in a row, built up to uh, October 23rd, which was our friend day, where we encouraged you to uh, be talking about your experience at Faith Community and your relationship with God and the value that all this brings to your life and be bringing uh, some friends with you to friend day. And that was October 23rd. And on that day, we launched a series on the topic of friendship. And so I've been talking about that ever since. And this is going to be the last in this series because we're going to be into some Christmas stuff here next week. So every, uh, for every person here, uh, actually, you should know this too, that I couldn't wait to get to this message. Sometimes when you do a series, you, when you're preparing a series, you kind of start with some ideas and you have no idea how it's actually going to end. And you're wondering if it ever is going to end. And uh, so I kind of wonder that too. How am I going to bring this to a conclusion? I started preparing this series knowing that this is where we were going to get to today because I've been a little excited about this whole telling this story today, looking at this passage of Scripture and seeing how it relates to our lives. So I hope it's, you find it relatable. Because for every person here, for people who are social, how many of you would you consider yourself a social person? I'm just curious. How many of you really don't care for people that much? <laughs> I, I know who you are. I just wondered if you knew who you are. For, for the introverts and the extroverts and everybody in between, doesn't matter. Friendship is an important thing. We've been saying that friendship is a relationship that's characterized by three things. It's characterized by enjoyment, acceptance, and genuine concern. Enjoyment, acceptance, and genuine concern. And accept, uh, enjoyment is simply you enjoy being with that person. Acceptance is you feel accepted by them. And genuine concern, we've said this, that this third element, this genuine concern, especially when it's a mutual genuine concern, is the thing that authenticates the friendship. That just having enjoyment and just having acceptance, it might look like and it might feel like a friendship, but the thing that makes a friendship a friendship is this third element, genuine concern. Genuine concern is, I'm in this for you, you're in this for me. Genuine concern means, I'm willing to risk this relationship for the sake of my friend. In other words, my friend is more important than this friendship. And you know something? In this life, you won't be overrun with friendships on that level. You'll get lots of enjoyment, lots of acceptance level relationships, but to have all three components... Uh, enjoyment, acceptance, and genuine concern is a rare thing. The reason this is such an important topic for all of us is this, because your friends and my friends will influence and in some cases determine the direction and the quality of our lives. That our friends will influence in some cases determine the direction and the quality of our lives. Every once in a while, so when I'm preparing a a message or a series of messages, I, I can kind of see how one thing's going to build to the next, and I get kind of excited about that. And so this is, this is the one I've kind of been waiting for, so I hope um, I've built it up now, and you're going to be so disappointed, but I don't usually raise the bar. So <laughs> I usually try to set very low expectations so you can walk out of here like, that wasn't bad. I just set myself up, didn't I? Um, I have so many conversations with people about this topic of friendship and how to get from enjoyment acceptance, how to get from there to genuine concern. So I've been wanting to get to this conversation this morning. Let me just say this. If you're not a Christian, you wouldn't identify yourself that way. For sure you're not a church insider, okay? I'll tell you what, maybe you've never read the Bible. You're not sure what you think of the Bible. I'm going to tell you it's an amazing book. It was, I know it was written like a zillion years ago by a bunch of guys who didn't even know each other, didn't live at the same time. Somehow it all came together. But it is amazing, and it's still relevant, and it's still practical to our lives. So this morning we're going to look at a story. 
specifically at a friendship. And chances are, even if you aren't real biblically literate uh, and you're not quite ready to lead a Bible study, maybe you remember some of this from the flannel graphs from the Sunday school days. Yeah, I know, you're still working on that with your therapist, I know. But from this story comes this amazing principle that is so powerful, and it's so powerful that no matter where you are in your life, even if you're uh, not remotely a religious person, you're here because your friend invited you to lunch after church, or if you've been a Christian since you were a preschool, it doesn't matter where you are. This principle is so far-reaching, and it's birthed from a friendship, but it reaches into so many areas of our lives and into all of our relationships. There's not a relationship, listen, that you're in this morning that this principle won't make better. And if there's anyone in your life that you're estranged from, a parent, a child, a sibling, someone who used to be a good friend, this principle is a powerful, potentially healing principle. And we find it in a famous friendship. And uh, so let's get into this. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to give you a little bit of background while you try to find that. 1 Samuel 18. In this story, Jonathan is the son of King Saul. They're the first two characters. Saul's the first king of Israel. He was the most eligible, Jonathan was the most eligible bachelor in the kingdom. Jonathan, he was the king's son. He was in line to be the next king of Israel. That's how it was going to work. Every single day of his life, you heard, you know, Jonathan, once you're the king, and Jonathan, when you're king, and you know what, Jonathan, when you become king, and from time to time, his father would come behind him and put his hand on his shoulder and say, now, Jonathan, one day, when I'm gone and you're the king. I mean, his whole life, he grew up preparing to become king. That was the plan. It was pretty clear how it was going to work. Everybody knows how that works. Uh, So from his schooling to his friendships uh, to what he was allowed to do and not allowed to do, he was going to be the king of Israel. And not only was he going to be the king, he was going to follow the very first king of Israel. So this is kind of a historic time in, uh, in in, in the nation of Israel. He would have a place in history. And he understood that for generations, people would be talking about his father and his place in history and his reign, and he would be the second king in the sovereign nation of Israel. So he knew that he had a part to play in the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel as a kingdom. And ever since he was a kid, he knew that what his future would be. Can you imagine that? I mean, how much time did you spend, or maybe you're still there and you're approaching 50 and trying to figure out what, what you're going to be when you grow up. And can you imagine, I mean, he knew from the time he was a kid what his future would be. It was laid out for him. The, the plan was in place. That was settled in the discussion. And he would have the best of everything. He would be wealthy. He would be well-educated. He would have the best and most powerful people all around him. His future was laid out in front of him. So he kind of like won the birth lottery. It was, he was set for life. And then one day... Standing on a hillside with his father, all of that changed. He's standing on a hill with with his father looking down into the valley, and the army of Israel is ready for battle. And his father's there. Jonathan's watching this whole thing with his dad, no doubt taking lots of notes. And on the other side of this valley is the Philistine army, Israel's number one declared enemy. Everything Israel did militarily, all the preparations they made, all their training, all their tactical training and all that, all of it was about defeating the Philistines. And Jonathan watches with his dad at his side as some unknown teenage shepherd from the hills somewhere strolls out into the valley, out into no man's land, 
with no armor, no spear, with a simple sling, and he challenged Goliath, the Philistines' number one warrior. You know the story. Goliath's nearly 10 feet tall. His spear is like a beam. He's undefeated in battle. And David, a shepherd, goes down there with his sling and he kills Goliath. In that moment, the affection of the nation of Israel shifted from Saul and his household to David, this unassuming backwoods shepherd. And in that one moment, in that one showdown, so you thought it was just about some shepherd boy throwing a rock at a big guy. No, no, this was a turning point. In that moment, David gained the fear and the respect of the Philistine army. And in that moment, David gained the love and the respect and the admiration of the entire nation of Israel. And a rumor began to spread that even before the showdown with Goliath, that the prophet Samuel, God's representative to the nation, had shown up at David's father's house and he had anointed David to be the next king of Israel. How could this be? That the throne of Israel would pass from Saul's household to David. And the prophet said, God has removed his hand of blessing from the household of Saul. David, you're going to be the next king. And your descendants will reign over Israel for generations and for generations and actually said forever. And rumor had it that this shorter-than-average, harp-playing, songwriter, shepherd boy had God's presence in his life and that he would be the next king. What we need to understand here is that there is no way that I could begin to stir up the emotion that's a huge part of this story. Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, had every right to hate David. He had every reason in the world to fear David. He had every reason in the world to resent David. Because think about it. David absolutely ruined Jonathan's life. David ruined Jonathan's future. Everything he'd been preparing to do, I mean, he was going to be the king. And now this guy, with his visit from the prophet, and with this act of bravery on the battlefield in front of everybody watching, suddenly Jonathan's whole future looks different. And he had every reason in the world to resent and to even hate this guy. And yet, as we see in this section of Scripture that we're going to look at in 1 Samuel, Jonathan, to his credit, he actually pursues a relationship with this guy that just ripped the rug out of his, from under his entire life, from everything that he thought his life would be about. And the rest of the story is that they became the closest and the best friends that we see anywhere in the Bible. So think about it. There are people in your life, and there are people in mine, And we're all bent out of shape because he said this and she did that and he took credit for this and she's just out of control and you wouldn't believe what I've had to put up with and you wouldn't believe how I've been taken advantage of. We've got so many wedges in relationships and the circumstances don't begin to compare to what we see here in 1 Samuel in the life of David and Jonathan. And yet Jonathan knew something, he understood something, he, he believed something, and we're going to look at it here in just a minute, that so revolutionized his perspective that he could pursue a relationship with a man who ruined his future, who took everything that rightfully belonged to him. So let's look at some verses here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, uh, start with verse 1. This gives us a good idea of how deep this relationship went. After David had finished talking with Saul, with, his de- uh, with uh, King Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, And he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him, and he did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his his belt. Let me tell you what's happening here. 
He's like, okay, that's got weird real fast. This was a covenant, and here's how it worked in the culture in those days. Here's what Jonathan was saying to David. When he took off his robe and he took off his tunic, he was in essence saying, I give you everything that is mine. This is representative of everything that is mine. Everything I have is yours. Think about it. This is the king's son saying this. And then it says, and even his sword. So when he took off his sword and his belt and he gave it to David, he was saying, I pledge to you unconditionally my protection, that before, I go, before you go down, I will go down, and I'm willing to give my life for you. And we, beyond that, we find out later that this, this was a multi-generational covenant, that as long as you have descendants, me and my descendants will take care of you and your family. This wasn't a casual friendship where they had some things in common and they enjoyed each other's company and they had experienced some acceptance on some level. It wasn't, hey, let's be best friends until someone better comes along or until I get distracted or until my priorities change. This, is, this, this was the real deal. And this is with the guy that just derailed his whole life. And it wasn't fair. After all, Jonathan could have said, you know, God, why in the world would, would you punish me for something that my father did? Okay, so my dad messed up. He, was a, he wasn't that great a king. You've got to take the throne away from him. I get that. I respect that. But I'm ready. I mean, go ahead, because I'm ready. I'm prepared. I've been getting ready my whole life. I'll do it. Why can't I be the king? This is so unfair. I didn't mess up. My dad did. Don't take the kingdom from me. Take it away from, don't take it away from my family. And he had every reason in the world, just like we think we have every reason in the world, to allow those wedges, those divisions, those things that create distance between us and the people in our lives. And somehow, some way, Jonathan avoided all those typical traps. Here's what it sounds like in our world. It sounds like irreconcilable differences. And I, I know this is a little close to where we live. But that's how we frame it. Irreconcilable differences, so we split up and we move on. It sounds like she got all the attention from our friends, so, uh, so I just get tired of that. It sounds like, well, when, when he got in that new job, he just changed. There was no way that we could be friends anymore. There's no way we could still be married anymore. Or this one. When they left the church and went to that other church, we couldn't be friends anymore because that's just so weird. It sounds like, well, she never invited me over for coffee anymore, and he never invited me out when the guys got together anymore, so I, we, we just cut them off. It sounds like, well, you know, I mean, they're kind of moving into a different economic bracket. It's so awkward. Never mind that most of it's pretending, but it's still awkward. Or maybe, maybe that one works the other way, too. You know, we just really want to hang out with people like us. You know what it sounds like in my world? Because, you know, the world I live in is, is, is pretty strange. It sounds like this. The so-and-so didn't like the way we're doing church, so they took their kids, and they're going to that other church. You know the one. <gasps> no! I mean, say it isn't so. Not another Bible-based, Jesus-centered church with a vision to reach our community. How? That's terrible that they would do that. Makes me so mad. <laughs> And those people that used to be super involved, you know, and then apparently, this is hard for me to believe, I said something that was interpreted as offensive. Oh, no. And I, I know, I, this is a bit of a stretch, I understand. I'm embellishing for sake of uh, the illustration. But, uh, <laughs> and they didn't even tell me, you know, but they told people who knew, who they knew, who they knew would tell me. 
And the reason they left is because they didn't like my preaching. And right now you're like, how could that be? Who are these people? And now they're going to an, that other church, you know which one I mean, where, you know, they could get fed. And I know for a fact I could preach circles around that guy because I listen to him online and I know it for a fact. So what's going on? Just being odd, so that works in my world. So or that, or that young family, the young couple that has so much potential, you know, for impact in our church and they left because they like the other pastor better. Again, hard to believe. Or they really identify with him because he's like 20 years older than me. But come on, I present myself as much younger than I am. So I don't understand this at all. So you know what it amounts to? It amounts to, I want to be king. And I don't like anybody that looks twice at this crown that will rightfully be mine someday. And I don't want to be friends with anybody that cuts into my territory. And if anybody tries to cut into my kingdom, then we have a problem and we can't be friends. Pride is such a subtle thing. You know what it looks like? Sometimes it looks like jealousy and resentment. Sometimes pride takes the form of, well, I got my feelings hurt. Instead of forgiving, I'm just going to hold on to my hurt and tell my story to anybody who will listen. You know, so nobody else will, will like you either. I'll teach you because after they hear my story, you'll be the villain and I'll be the hero uh, when I'm done telling the story. So listen to this. And then over time, I'm going to let my anger and let my bitterness seep into a bunch of my other relationships. And, and that might eventually, probably, most definitely, yes, it will, put a wedge between me and the other people as well. Because, see, when you cut into my kingdom, then I've got to find something wrong with you. I can't be happy for your success because if you're cutting into my kingdom, your success is my failure. And so pride gets in. And it becomes almost impossible to be friends with and to speak positively about and to be kind to people who seem to be threatening our kingdom. Oh, and then there's Saul in this story. Turn over a couple chapters to chapter 20. Two verses here. Here's King Saul's approach, okay? This is just an, a little peek into the character, the flawed character of this man. King Saul says this in verse 30 of chapter 20. He says, it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan when he found out he was hanging out with David. And he said to him, you son of a... What's it? Oh, perverse and rebellious woman. I like that trend. I can just hear, you know, that's your new, that's your new <laughs> Christian cuss word right there. Son of a perverse and rebellious woman. <laughs> Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, it's David, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse, talking about David, as long as he lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now someone, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Do you pick up on the contrast here? Saul gets the picture. He sees what's going on here. He's like, Jonathan, hello. Don't you realize that if we let David hang around much longer, he's going to be the king and you're going to be like a nobody? I don't want you to hang out with him anymore. No, 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 no. Let's up the ante. Not only do I not want you to hang out, hang out with him anymore, I want you to bring him to me and you and I are going to have a little father-son bonding time and we're going to kill him. I know you have some extreme circumstances in your life. I acknowledge that. But I doubt, I mean, I hope, that you're not at a place where the only solution for your deal is, we've got to kill this guy. The only solution is to take her out. It's my only option. 
I mean, I, I, I don't think your situation is that extreme. And if it is, please come talk to me before you go anywhere after church today because we've got to have a conversation. My point is, there really isn't any way for me to communicate to you the emotion in this story. That King Saul sees everything he's lived for and worked for and everything he's wanted for his son and his, his sons and his legacy of his family. He sees everything he's dreamed of and it's about to be ripped away from him. But this nobody shepherd kid who knows how to fire a sling and how to play a harp, he's completely baffled as to why his son, who's next in line rightfully so, the throne is rightfully his. He can't figure out why Jonathan won't get in on this with him and why isn't he as upset as I am? Why doesn't he seem to be as upset about all this? This what is his deal anyway? And don't get me wrong, Jonathan isn't passe about this. He isn't just neutral about it. He actually pursues a relationship with David and he pledges his allegiance and his devotion and his whole life to him. So here's the question. What in the world did Jonathan know that we don't know? The answer is found right here in the scripture, and this is, this is why the Bible just continues to amaze me. You should read it. Read it for yourself. If this is the only time you ever read it, when you're sitting here and I t- suggest some verses to look up, I just want to challenge you. Look, we've got a new year coming right around the corner. Uh, you could get a head start right now on reading through the Bible in 2017. You could start right now. Get, well, not right now. Give me half an hour. But then you could get started and read this thing for yourself because it is kind of dry and it is deep and it is super weird in places. But just keep reading and get to the stuff like this because it has the potential to change your life. And uh, this, is, this is a principle that if we can just get a hold of in a way that Jonathan did, if we'll just get, let this get a hold of us, I don't think there's a division in any relationship that can't be healed. There's no division in any of your relationships that you're in right now where when you apply this principle, you can at least make some progress. We're still in 1 Samuel 20. I'm going to back up to verse 13. Here's Jonathan talking to David, verse 13. But if my father intends to harm you, if, if my father intends to harm you. Like, I don't know what his plans are, David. doesn't seem to like you. Um, <laughs> okay, Let's read this. Since my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, Jonathan, be it ever so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. In other words, even if my dad comes after you and even if he comes after me, I'm going to protect you. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. Verse 14. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, with the house of David, that's, that's his descendants forever, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Here it is, ready? Ready? Listen. Because it's going to get pretty deep pretty fast. Jonathan recognized and he surrendered to the fact that God had chosen David to be the next king. That's it. He recognized that God had made a decision, that God had made a choice. And he recognized that in light of that, he had one of two responses. He could either resist the decision of God or he could surrender himself humbly And not only just force himself to accept it, but to commit himself to make sure that God's decision, that God's desire for David and for the nation of Israel became a reality. 
So he made a covenant with David, not because David deserved to be king, but be, not because David deserved anything, but because sovereign God had made a choice. Jonathan could have pitched a fit. Most of us would have. He could have thrown a royal tantrum about how unfair this whole thing was. He could have looked at David and said, you know, he doesn't know anything about being a king. He's, I've got all this training my whole life. He's a simple, smelly shepherd slash poet slash musician. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't come from the right family. He doesn't have the right training. He doesn't come from the right town. He could have focused on David and come to a complete opposite conclusion, just like his father Saul did. But see, the issue here was not David. The issue wasn't what does David deserve. The issue was God has clearly decided. And Jonathan was wise enough, even as a young man, to realize his responsibility in light of God's decision was to surrender to the will of God. And he asked this question. How is the king's son, who's lived his whole life in training to be the next king, how is the king's son supposed to respond if he knows that he has a faithful sovereign God who has, in his sovereignty, chosen someone else to be the king? How is the king's son supposed to respond to that? When Almighty God has chosen someone else to take his place on the throne, how is he supposed to respond? And Jonathan concluded that the best response was to go along with the plan God had laid out and to do everything he could to make sure that God's dream and God's desire for the nation became a reality. And you know something? Jonathan's life was ruined. You look at what was laid out in front of him his whole life. And Jonathan died in an obscure place, in an obscure battle that amounted to nothing, killed by a Philistine, of course. But he died having surrendered himself to the will of God for his life. Here's where this principle haunts us and just weaves its way into all of our lives. See, you've got to hang with me. God has made some decisions about our lives. You're like, ooh, really? Ooh, uh. He has some dreams for you and for me. Sometimes in my default mode, I realize I have one hand grasping on the throne of my life saying, but I want to be king. I deserve it. Made all the right choices. I've, you know, whatever, done all the stuff. I, it's mine, rightfully so. I deserve it. I seem to be having lots of conversations with people lately, and somehow, and if I've had conversations with people in this room, so just know that you're not the only one. We've been talking a lot about God's sovereignty. You know what I'm talking about. God's in control. God has a plan. And then, you know, when I slap you when you say that to me, and then you come to, and you're like, what happened? Remember that conversation? Uh, so we've had a lot of these conversations lately where that comes up. God's in control. God has a plan. We're talking about God's sovereignty. So I'll probably end up teaching about that sometime soon, but not this morning, because uh, there's a lot of confusion about it, and uh, I'm not sure I understand it. But here's the other side of the equation. In addition to having a dream for our lives, God decided to give people freedom. We call it free will. Sometimes the free will of the people in my life and yours bumps into us, and it gets in our way. And it gets in our face, and it's kind of an interruption, or a detour, or a distraction, or a full-blown catastrophe. And honestly, sometimes other people's free will gets on my nerve because they do things 
Well, they do things that bother me and annoy me, first of all, but then they do things that really matter, and it's like, no, don't. And more often than not, in their freedom to choose, because God gave us this freedom, they make decisions that take them off track, and in some cases, totally derail their lives. And then they come to me, wondering what to do next, wondering how to put it all back together. It drives me nuts but I guess it comes with the territory. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes the people in our lives, in the exercising of their free will, they do things that hurt us. They do things that disappoint us. They do things that cost us something. They do things that leave lasting scars. We end up carrying their baggage for years, the scars of their choices. And ultimately... Listen, God's kind of behind all that. Hold on. Because he's the one who decided to give us free will. This free will thing was God's idea. You're like, ooh, wish he thought that one through a little bit more. But it's in his love and in his sovereignty, he decided to give us free will. Our dilemma is this. Do we spend our lives driving wedges between us and other people deeper. Because he did that, and she didn't do this, and she said that, and he didn't, he won't, he ought to. Or are we willing, like Jonathan, to say, you know what, God? Nothing comes into my life that you don't allow. I'm not saying you caused it, but you certainly allowed it. I know you know about it. I know it doesn't surprise you. I know you could do something about it if you chose to, but you don't have to, so I shouldn't expect you to. And since you haven't chosen to change it, I'm going to accept it. I'm going to accept that you're okay with it right now. So I surrender to that. Let me tell you something. I can't say this clearly enough. The kind of uh, humility, as impractical as it sounds, Because you're sitting there thinking, well, when do I get to tell you about my situation? Because <laughs> with all due respect, you know, I got some stuff that you need to hear because it'll change your whole... No, no, I don't. With all due respect, I don't need to hear your story. It won't change what I'm about to say. But the kind of humility that allows you to surrender to God to the point that you can love your enemies, that kind of humility gives God access. It frees Him to act in extraordinary ways on your behalf. Without surrender, God's limited by your free will. But when we surrender our wills to his, he can move in extraordinary ways in our lives. And that kind of humility frees you to love people who aren't lovable. Because here's how it works for us. Our relationships hinge on everybody we're in relationship with acting a certain way, right? Right? There's, there, we talk about unconditional love. We don't even know what unconditional love is. We just mean that's the most loving kind of thing. That's as far as I can comprehend. I'll call it unconditional. But all of our love is conditional. I will if you will. You show good character, I'll show good character. If you're immoral, I will show you some more good character. If you're disrespectful or dishonest, or this relationship isn't as important to you as it is to me, the whole thing falls apart and the relationship is over. Our relationships kind of hinge on one another's character. Just the way it is. It's the way humans function. 
But what Jonathan discovered is that if it's just about that, then he had every reason to hate David. But his confidence wasn't in David's character. His confidence was in the character of God. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is faithful. God loves me. God is with me. And if God is that way, then no matter what David does, I'm responding to God as he is rather than to David as I think he is. So the challenge for me and challenge for you I guess is not to manipulate to get our way in terms of this story, not to force things to get my kingdom, to get you into your proper place in my kingdom. My responsibility, your responsibility is to ask the question that David asked or Jonathan asked himself in light of these circumstances, in light of the fact that I have a sovereign God who loves me, in light of that, how should I respond? Because then there's Saul who died an angry, bitter, delusional man because he spent his whole life arguing with God. So the question is, will we respond like Jonathan? This isn't my idea. This wasn't my choice. This wasn't the plan, but I trust you. Or we can respond like Saul and kick and fight and argue and take matters into our own hands and miss God completely. There's something that Jesus taught that I've never been able to get my head around. And he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, because if you just want some, if you want some scripture and some teaching of Jesus to just cause you to lay awake at night and think about stuff, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and let that sink in a little while. He said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard it, love your enemies. And we're like, what? Well, however you define enemy, okay? He didn't say, put up with them. Put up with your enemies. Check. He didn't say, tolerate your enemies. Oh, I can do that. Yeah, no problem. He didn't say, be nice to them when you run into them in the store. Not what he said. Avoid them if you can. Don't gossip. That's not what he said. He said, love them. Like I said about Jonathan a few minutes ago, Jonathan pursued a relationship with David. A relationship that's characterized by love requires that we act, that we pursue Without the kind of humility that we see in Jonathan, without the kind of surrender that he lived out, it's impossible, impossible to really love your enemies. Let me bring this into our lives so we can begin to imagine what this really looks like in real life. The Apostle Paul said, he said a lot of really practical things, and he said this. He said, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He said that in in Ephesians. Husband, love your wives like Christ loved the church. To which you might say, but you don't know my wife. Not the issue. But she doesn't reciprocate. Not the issue. Paul also said that Christ loved us while we were were still sinners. We were still living in open rebellion against God, and he loved us. That's how Christ loved the church. He showed his love for us by giving us his son. We're going to hear a lot about that over the next couple of uh, times together here during the Christmas season. So what do you do when you live with a spouse that you think is unlovable? When you live with a spouse that doesn't return love for love, what do you do with that? This passage in Ephesians continues. Paul says, husbands, after this, after he says, husbands, love your wives, he continues and he says, wives, submit to your husbands. <gasps> Don't you know it's, 20, it's 2016? We can't say that. I know, I know. Um, and the guys are like, yes. Um, how? Because the women are like, how am I supposed to submit to someone who's a complete jerk most of the time? 
What does it even mean to submit to your husband? What am I, some kind of second-class citizen now? Here's something that we've all got to understand, okay? The command to submit is for all of us. Keep reading. Keep reading that passage. Read Paul's instructions right after this to the local church. Read what the Apostle Peter had to say to those first century Christians. The expectation is that we would all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because ultimately, he's the one we're submitting to. Wives submitting to husbands. Wait. Husbands submitting to their wives. Yep, read the whole passage. Believers submitting to other believers. Ultimately, living in submission to the will of God for our lives. That's how this works. Can you imagine what your relationships in your home with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, what, can you imagine what those relationships would look like if they were characterized truly by mutual submission? How about this one, Ephesians 6? The only children in the room, I think, are teenagers, so sorry, guys. It says, children, obey your parents. I know, I know, they don't understand you, they're so old-fashioned, they dress, they're so lame, they're so out of touch, they're so out of touch, they still use Facebook, you know? I mean, and, and they aren't always right. I understand that. But the character of your parents isn't the issue. God has placed them in authority over you. They are accountable to God for your development as a person and as a follower of Jesus Christ. So their character is an issue. The character of God is the issue. And he's demonstrated over and over to generations and generations of people who came before us. And he's demonstrated to us, really, over and over that he can be trusted. He knows what's going on. He's not caught by surprise. He loves us. He has our best interests in mind. So I guess my challenge for us this morning, um, and this has been a really challenging passage for me this week. My challenge for you is this that you and I would look at every relationship around us, especially those that have some wedges, where we know there are some issues. Because he did something. She said something. It's not fair. That deal there, that's not fair. The way he, that's not fair. That we would just say, yes, God, these unfair situations were brought on by the exercise of someone's free will, but they were also filtered through your divine providence, and therefore I'm trusting you and I'm, I'm not responding to their character. I'm responding to your character. I'm trusting in your character. Show me. How does someone in my circumstances, in the t- context of these relationships, how should I respond when I know I have a loving Heavenly Father? That's the challenge. I want to put a prayer on the screen that you might want to pray as we process this this week. And it goes something like this. Father, this didn't take you by surprise. I trust you. I surrender to your will for me. And I know that you aren't finished writing this story. Let's lean into that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to refocus. Help us to just allow you to refocus our attention to see things as you see them. Help us to see our circumstances as Jonathan saw his circumstances. Through that, God, I pray you give us the courage to surrender to your will. Give us the grace to accept the choices of other people. 
Give us a grace to accept the consequences of this thing that we call free will. Give us a faith and the trust to allow you to be king of our lives. That's our prayer. May our lives be characterized by surrender to your will. In Jesus' name. Listen to this. The riches of this world will fade. The treasures of our God remain. Here I empty myself to all this world, nothing, and find everything in you. The riches of this world will fade. Yours be done, not my strength.